This is Macro Horizons, Episode 7, The Art of the Repeal, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 25th. Views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.com. L-Y-N-G-E-N at BMO.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Thanks, Ian. Given the updates we've received both on monetary policy and the state of the real economy over the past week, what's your take on where we currently stand in the rates market? Thanks, Ben. It's been a relatively range-bound market in Treasury space, but that's not to suggest that there hasn't been a few key developments over the course of the last week that warrant acknowledgement. We did see the FOMC minutes from the most recent meeting, and the minutes offered some clarity, although within the context of monetary policy uncertainty, provided no clear direction as to what the Fed's next move will be. One of our key takeaways was that the conversation, at least at the most recent meeting, was centered around whether or not to hike again, rather than the looming question of whether to hike or cut as the next move. That certainly isn't atypical for where we are in the cycle, and some of the key figures on the FOMC, like Williams, noted that it's a very high bar in terms of growth and inflation, to justify another hike at this point. We're reminded that with 10-year yields at effectively 265 to 70, the fact that the FOMC over the course of the last several years has dropped their own projection of where they believe the long-run rate for Fed funds should be from roughly 340 to 280, the notion that any backup in 10-year yields beyond 280, 285 will continue to represent a meaningful buying opportunity. We maintain that the beginning of this year will continue to be characterized by a flattening of the yield curve, particularly in 210 space, with the persistent chance of an inversion. That call isn't based on the idea that there'll be some sustained grab for duration, but rather that the Fed, as we've already started to see, will start to walk back some of the more definitively dovish aspects of the recent rhetoric. Suffice it to say, that all comes down to the economic data, and what we've seen so far has been a mixed bag. We had reasonable inflation figures, but the consumer appears to be struggling, and as a result, we've seen a ratcheting down of growth expectations for both the fourth quarter of 2018 as well as the first quarter of 2019. While the debate on the FOMC might be whether or not to hike again, the Treasury market has moved beyond that debate and is really more focused on 
how long the Fed will be on hold before we will see a shift into an easing cycle. The FOMC certainly would like the debate to be centered around whether or not there's another rate hike in 2019. However, the Treasury market is really more focused on if we see a cut in the year ahead. Monetary policy officials are certainly going to be faced with a bit of a dilemma if we continue to see reasonable domestic growth and inflation at a time when the rest of the global economy appears to be slowing down. We've recently seen very weak manufacturing PMIs out of Europe, disappointing export data from Japan as well as South Korea. Domestically, the data hasn't been ideal. In fact, even the Philly Fed posted a particularly disappointing read recently. There's clearly a consensus building around the idea that the Fed's balance sheet normalization will stop sometime in 2019. The question isn't whether or not it occurs at this point, but rather the timing. The Fed's decision to issue separate statements in January, the balance sheet strategy versus the traditional FOMC statement, make it pretty clear that the committee has laid the groundwork for the end of balance sheet runoff. We're looking for an announcement as early as the March FOMC meeting, which is just a few weeks away. If not March, we expect May would be the natural alternative. At this point, it's largely priced in, so if anything, a delay or a decision not to end the balance sheet runoff would hit risk assets and via a spike in equity market volatility tighten financial conditions. Given the experience of late 2018, we don't think that this is a risk that the Fed is in a position to take at the moment. As a result, we expect further clarification from the Fed in short order on the state of the balance sheet. As something of an aside, the end of the balance sheet runoff will have implications for the Treasury Department's issuance profile. While we've already heard that nominal coupon sizes have reached a plateau, at least for the time being, any reduction in the amount that the Treasury Department needs to borrow will presumably come out of the bill market, and as a result, offset some of the incremental flattening that we expect to occur as policy rhetoric shifts from extremely dovish to slightly less dovish. As is so often the case, it really is a matter of nuance in the treasury market at the moment, and with 10-year yields holding such a very tight range, it's difficult to argue that we are poised for a decided breakout without some type of fundamental or monetary policy impetus. Much like the rest of the market and policymakers, we find ourselves in a wait-and-see mode that we expect will translate to a waited-and-saw reaction once the Treasury market reprices to the reality of the end of the tightening cycle. One thing is obvious, it certainly has not been a slow start to the new year, and as 2019 plays out, we expect that the bulk of the volatility will actually occur in the very front end of the curve rather than redefining the range for 10s and 30s as we move through the cycle. We once again find ourselves in our makeshift Macro Horizon studio contemplating life's most meaningful questions. So on that note, what do you think is going to happen with FMC communication? Particularly, are they going to keep the dots going forward or is there going to be some type of change? Ah, uh, the beloved dot plot. I think fundamentally the Fed has done a very good job 
laying out a framework for communications that has been in place since the crisis. And while monetary policy hasn't necessarily been stable throughout this period, what we have seen is the guidance from the Fed really took a lot of the volatility out of the market, particularly the long end of the curve, arguably contributed to the removal of term premium and has brought the market to a place where a perpetual range between 250 and 350 in 10-year yields seems to be the accepted new normal. So what happens when and if the Fed decides to reduce forward guidance in the form of the dot plot, forward guidance in the form of what they actually include in the statement. Obviously, we would see a reversal of the compression of all that resulted from the introduction of forward guidance, but the form in which that takes will be a function of how the Fed chooses to augment its communications. So here's a thought experiment. So say the Fed holds rates through 2019. And then by December 2019, not that this is a base case, the median 2020 dot is 100 basis points lower. One of the difficulties with simply using the dots to go the other direction is the attractiveness of the dots was to emphasize a consistent cadence of quarterly hikes. You know, it was one or two 25-bit moves. But if you suddenly see 100, should the market assume that that's four 25 basis point moves every quarter? two 50-bit moves, one 100-bit move, because the Fed has shown a predilection to move rates faster to the downside than to the upside. And in essence, it's a slightly different ballgame during a rate cut cycle. Is it still appropriate to have the same communication tool via the dots? Well, I suspect that once they do get to the point that they need to cut, the cuts will happen rather dramatically. And so the dot plot might be irrelevant given its published once a quarter. So imagine we're in a situation where over the course of three or four meetings, the Fed determines that the economy needs a great deal of stimulus. We go from an effective Fed funds of 240 to an effective Fed funds of 40. There's a strong argument that in a rate cut cycle, the Fed's communications effort could benefit from the introduction of a balance sheet target as well, comparable to the dot plot in a tightening cycle, if the Fed would like to signal that they intend to expand the balance sheet or there's a willingness to do so, you might see a projection with a wide error band around what the ideal level of excess reserves would be. The other thing, and with this is a topic that often comes up, And that's the idea that the Fed could shift to price level targeting instead of having a year-over-year PCE objective. Clearly, that's not a transition that the FOMC would make during a tightening cycle. However, as a way of signaling to the market a commitment to remain lower for longer, it seems to follow intuitively at the end of an easing campaign. I would almost argue that the several members of the committee have started to lay the groundwork for price level targeting, sometimes rather explicitly so. And part of this is it's either Yellen's optimal control theory, but it's basically the idea that the committee's willing to let inflation run a little bit hot because during downturns or recovery periods, it was running a little bit low. In essence, you know, you want it to, on average over time, grow 2%. 
not any one given quarter. And there seems like there's some open intellectual commitment to doing so. The reason that that's necessary, though, is a little bit darker. And it's the argument that during the next downturn, rates are going to go back to zero. Monetary policy is going to be constrained. What used to be called extraordinary measures are going to become commonplace. And fiscal policy is not going to be able to close the output gap. So the concern is that X percent of the time, you have less than 2% inflation. And one minus X percent of the time, you have two. If you have that 2% all the time target, the weighted average or the expectation of that is de-anchored from 2%. So the reason why this price level targeting has to exist there is the risk that we're not going to be able to achieve potential growth, close the output gap, and get to 2%. In terms of pricing, what I would flag is this means lower real yields. And one of the takeaways we've seen in recent weeks, the idea that neutral in the nominal side might be 240, well, you know, subtract two, that gives you 40 bips of real neutral Right now, real rates, especially in 5s, 10s, 30s, are significantly higher than that. Even if they go to neutral, that could imply quite the rally in tips to come. One could argue that if they do make the transition to price-level targeting, that that would push real rates even lower, which does beg the question, if we're at a period where the Fed is on hold, the domestic data continues to be good, if not great. Inflation is the missing component. What's to stop Powell from transitioning to price level targeting mid-cycle? So the 2% target has always been a bit of a self-imposed thing from the Fed. The actual Federal Reserve Act just says maximum employment in the context of price stability. The explicit 2% commitment is a relatively recent evolution in Federal Reserve, and it wouldn't be too much of a leap to then make it, well, the price stability, the 2% thing is 2% over time or something like that. It doesn't have to be as dramatic. It's more of a communication challenge. Largely, they'll be doing something similar. And in fact, the Fed is kind of taking a step back and looking at their structural framework, communication, as well as general policy stance to make sure that they're achieving maximum employment in the context of price stability. And I think this is an area to watch, including potentially this year, as more and more members endorse this line of thinking. Certainly, the New York Fed President Williams has been a leader in this space and has basically come out endorsing some form of price level targeting. But you've also seen relative veterans in the committee like Charlie Evans or Rosengren in Boston who have expressed sympathy, if not versions of doing so. So I think there's a recognition on the committee that they don't want to hit the next downturn not having a playbook ready to make that pivot into some form of price level targeting. Because if they did, the risk would be, oh no, the Fed's not going to be able to get its 2% mandate. Inflation expectations fall. That makes it even harder to get inflation up. And we start to look a lot like Japan once again. Yeah, the parallels with Japan are always frightening. Although clearly entirely different economies, there's this notion that the world is converging to a very, very low rate environment seems to be particularly topical at this point. One of the other questions that this raises is what happens to the shape of the U.S. yield curve? Several people have highlighted that the 10-year sector looks particularly rich against 2s and 30s, and the 5-year sector looks rich against 2s and 10s. Now, part of that is a function of the fact that 2-year yields are anchored to 
near-term monetary policy expectations. And part of that is if the Fed is going to shift gears from attempting to price in a hike to coming to the realization that they might need to cut, the market rightly expects the belly of the curve to outperform. And to loop this back to the topic we were just talking about, the price level targeting, in theory, what one should expect if that is implemented is lower rates for longer. Basically, the Fed is going to be willing to overshoot on inflation in the future by having lower rates longer than they otherwise would have. And this is important because expectations for rates twos to fives out to the belly are partly a function of where Fed policy is going to be. So in a historical rate cycle, you know the expectation is the Fed cuts, spends a little bit of time low, and then starts to grow. This time, if they went to a price-level targeting, they would be actively committing to a longer period at lower, which would serve to further rich in the belly versus previous instances. Rich in the belly. And in addition, one would expect investors to require more compensation to go further out the curve. So we might actually see a re-steepening as 30-year yields rise to provide investors greater inflation compensation for locking in for 30 years. And in some ways, you've seen that. The 10s 30 spread is at multi-month highs. How much of that might have to do with supply pressures pushing up 10s and 30s? I mean, we are at all-time record highs, even if a lot of the underlying relative value isn't showing it or term premium models don't necessarily show any type of blowout. You are seeing a steepening of 10s 30s, which would be consistent with that thesis. So on that topic of 10s, 30s, do you think the recent steepening is over? I guess, how do you expect that curve to evolve in the coming months? Well, 10s, 30s, and 5s, 30s, for that matter, have clearly reached a pivotal point and shifted from cyclical flattening to cyclical steepening. I expect that the curve will continue to steepen, assuming that the Fed has reached the terminal rate for this cycle. Or perhaps there might be another rate hike. But what we can say with a reasonable amount of confidence is there's probably not another 100 basis points of tightening on the horizon from the Fed. So in that environment, the belly of the curve, fives and tens, will continue to outperform as the market prices in a flatter OIS curve with the prospects of lower for longer. What then becomes the next unknown is the depth of any slowdown. If the Fed is faced with a significant recession, perhaps not comparable to the crisis, but something more than just a pedestrian slight downturn of a couple quarters slightly below zero, then I would expect the risk of another round of QE would become very topical. And it's in that environment where I would expect the long bond to once again outperform. So it's interesting you mentioned the extra 100 basis points of tightening. I was digging into the weeds of some of the major term premium models. So the way they do term premia, they do the average short rate over the next 10 years, look at current market yields, the difference is the term premium. And a lot of people take these models at face value, which I'd argue can be a very risky proposition. And what I mean by this is the New York Fed's ACM model, which is very widely watched and cited, assumes average short rates of 3.4% or so over the next 10 years. Given all our talk about downside risk to rates, the lower for longer, does that strike you as a reasonable proposition, including do you think a lot of clients share that perspective? 
to the defense of the models, the Fed's previous estimates of the long-run rate for Fed funds was in the mid-threes. This might have predated you, John. When the dot plot originally came out in 2012, for the long-term rate, the range of estimates, the bottom, was actually higher than the top of the current range of estimates, suggesting that over the course of the last seven years, the evolution of monetary policy thinking has brought down the perceived level of both neutral and the degree to which the Fed can tighten. Yeah, so there are two follow-ups I guess I'd have to that is one, that means that long tenor forwards might have a room to run lower, which should be bullish for 10s and 30s as the market continues to catch up to the thinking of where neutral might be. And two, even our most recent read on the longer run dot estimates from the SCP is probably stale now. In the last estimate, it was 275 was the median for neutral. Given the committee's pretty okay pausing at 240, I think there's a decent risk that you could see further downward revisions to 250 or so in March. So what do you think would need to shift in terms of the Fed's thinking at this moment to truly get the market back to a place where investors were comfortable pricing in 25 basis points every six months from the Fed? So a couple of things would have to occur, and largely they would have to deal with inflationary pressure, not only in terms of realized data, but also expectations. I think it would take the one-two punch of the two basically coming together and signaling that the Fed is going to have to actively tighten potentially past neutral in order to make sure that inflation doesn't get out of control. Like, I guess said differently, if 240 is neutral, what would it take for the Fed to go into active, aggressive tightening mode? And then they'd need a pretty good reason to. Either asset prices are getting weird and you're starting to see bubble pressure, funkiness, or you start to see aggregate picks up of inflation in ways that we haven't really seen almost in my lifetime. So the last 10 years? Uh, nine and a half. All right, fair enough. Shifting gears slightly, let's talk about the technicals. John, what is your perception of the value of seasonal patterns in predicting moves in the treasury market? So the inner academic economist wannabe type in me is naturally kind of skeptical of some of the seasonals just because, you know, the financial theory is that these should be identified, priced out, something observable and predictable like that shouldn't exist. Otherwise, some sophisticated hedge fund would come in and price it out. That being said, there are some reasons to think why they might continue to exist. Supply in particular, the refundings come four times a year in a very predictable pattern. And data as well tends to be skewed to different points. So, for example, we get a new release on GDP only four times a year, and then we get updates from there. So you could see some evidence of dynamics around that. And then furthermore, it's almost just a behavioral finance thing. People allocate money not at random throughout the year, but investment decisions, allocations are made at very specific times. And you can see certain rebalancings occur, particularly, say, around year-end or quarter-end, that might cause some significant distortion. So I guess I would say that I continue to be skeptical about overplaying this, but it certainly is a factor on occasion. And I think people who have been in the market for a long time are familiar with it and have identified the value that it can offer and having an informed opinion on the next direction of rates. I'd add to that that as I make the rounds and I 
speak with clients and people who are making investment decisions, there is a reluctant acknowledgement of the usefulness of the seasonals. I'm often called upon to try and justify why there is a tendency for the treasury market to sell off in the beginning of the year. Part of that is obviously going to be a function of allocation decisions being made. As was the case in 2019, equities performed pretty well out of the gate. However, that only occurred after a significant repricing lower. There has been very little upward pressure on rates thus far in 2019. Again, largely a function of a repricing. I would also note somewhat of a shift in the seasonal patterns post-crisis. Before the crisis, what we would tend to see a sideways grind or a slight drop in yields into the end of the year. And then the beginning of the year, well into the second quarter, there would be a clear upward bias on 10-year treasury yields. Since the crisis, that has been moved forward somewhat. Recall at the end of every year of the last four or five years, there has been some event that has signaled to the market that either the Fed or market more broadly is expecting a transition towards escape velocity in some way, shape, or form for the real economy. First, it was the tapering of QE. Then it was the first rate hike, and then next year was going to be great. Then it was the election of Trump, and next year was going to be great for the economy. Then it was the taper of the balance sheet. Next year was going to be great. And what happened in all those periods is that we actually saw the fourth quarter being uncharacteristically bearish for treasuries. And while that was eventually challenged four to six months later in most episodes, we have seen a fair amount of consistency. The experience of 2018 is not dissimilar, although the pattern of correction was brought forward by three to four months. So a couple of things on that. One, it seems like you're really trying to make seasonals great again. But more than that, it seems, and this is kind of the way that I've come around to thinking about it, there's nothing in it of themselves about squiggly lines going up and down at certain times during the year that makes it seasonal. It's that the economy, economic calendar, Fed communication tends to be the underlying reasons why we might see some of these price developments go up. So for example, when we were talking about how long the Fed might pause, the fact that some of the market default to a year suggests that you might see a seasonal around the end of the year event bias towards another rate hike higher in the dynamic that you just described. So at its essence, your argument is that seasonals reflect a pattern of how decision makers deal with their own expectations and outlooks for real factors in the economy. You made a good point earlier that the seasonals and technicals generally are a version of applied behavioral finance. As it applies in the case of seasonals, there seems to be a collective willingness at year end to price in some degree of green shoots that ultimately wither to more modest ambitions. So what we're really saying is that the collective New Year's resolutions made by policymakers and investors have had an increasingly short shelf life. 
Yeah, but you got to respect the optimism that comes into always thinking this time is different. We're going to keep with our resolutions. I mean, I made it about three days before I stopped fulfilling mine this year. That reminds me of one of my favorite market adages. It's not different this time. It's just new people making the same mistakes. John, as you've pointed out several times in the past, you've never actually lived through a rate cut cycle. I mean, supposedly I was alive, but I was in college at the moment. You went to college? I didn't say I attended class. I'd sit around on the steps and pretend to read a book. No one ever accused you of having much class. I wear glasses, though, so I think it can be confusing for some. Well, clearly the juniorization of Wall Street is an interesting topic and one that I'm sure we'll discuss in future episodes of Macro Horizons. But for now, we'll continue to compensate for our glaring lack of insight with the occasional witty turn of phrase. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will get a lot of new information, both on the fundamental as well as the policy side. We'll hear from Powell at his semi-annual congressional testimony, where we would like to assume that we'll have some type of clarification in terms of what the balance sheet runoff is going to look like and where the debate currently stands in terms of whether or not the Fed has any intention of hiking later this year. To be fair, we're sure that the Fed would like to hike if the economic data plays out the way that they hope that it will. We're reminded time and time again that hope is not a viable strategy. Nonetheless, there remains enough uncertainty that we expect the FOMC will want to retain flexibility to hike at one point, so we'll keep the possibility of a rate hike alive for the time being. Now, ultimately, that's going to weigh on the very front end of the curve, and this has been contributing to our bias to continue to see the two-stins curve flatten. We're reminded that while the market is very focused on the shape of two's tens, what the Fed really cares about is the three-month bill versus ten spread. And as we've watched that continue to flatten, the lagged impact of prior flattening on corporate profitability comes to mind. If we look historically, there's about an 18-month lag between the flattening of the curve and when that actually flows through to corporate profitability. The experience of 2018 with the tax reforms have actually given a reasonable cushion to the corporate side. It's one that, however, has increased the base effects or effectively raised the bar for 2019 in terms of profit growth. This is a dynamic that we expect to see played out in risk assets over the course of the next two or three months, and if anything, provides a headwind or offsets some of the easier financial conditions. There are a couple important deadlines this week. The first one is obviously on the trade front, although we do expect some type of extension that will give the White House in Beijing more time to produce a longer-term trade deal. Acknowledging that we're certainly not political strategists, we will toss out the idea that the trade war has lingered on long enough. The White House could benefit from the resolution of this issue. In recent conversations with clients, one question's been coming up more often than we would have expected at this point in the cycle, and that is, who's going to win the 2020 election? Obviously, we don't even know at this point who's going to be running. However, and this speaks to our general shortcomings on the political strategy side, we were not only surprised 
by Trump's victory in 2016, but we were also surprised by the market's reaction. What we saw was rather than trading the candidate, the market was content to trade the party. Now, part of that had to do with the Republicans taking all of Congress, but still, it's notable that we saw a very significant rally in risk assets that was coupled with an improvement in both business sentiment as well as consumer sentiment. The trade war and the realities of the economic data over the last two years have undermined that business confidence, which has weighed on equities and subsequently rolled through to lower consumer confidence, which, as we know, it's the weakness in consumer confidence that really hits the U.S. economy the hardest. Moving forward to 2020, the consensus at the moment, at least, seems to be that there's a high probability that the White House will shift to the Democrats. If that occurs, regardless of the candidate, we would expect that the trade would be centered around the party. So less pro-business, less tax cut oriented. And as a result, a hit to risk assets seems to be the easiest call at this point. In practical terms, that means that in the interim period, we would look for any increase in the likelihood of a Democratic victory to be negative for risk. This comes at a point when in 2019, we have seen a shift back to the classic QE moments in which bad news for the real economy actually translated into good news for equity prices. The presumption there being, as long as the economy is stuttering, the Fed will be reluctant to hike rates and tighten monetary policy. We've certainly seen that come to fruition with Powell striking the Fed put. And as we seek further clarification on the balance sheet, we expect that dynamic to remain in the Treasury market. We also get some of the economic data that we have been missing due to the shutdown, most notably fourth quarter GDP. Expectations are for a print somewhere north of 2%. And as we have commented in the past, we expect that given the interim data and the performance of risk assets, when the fourth quarter GDP comes out, while it will certainly trigger an initial price response, at the end of the day, it will be largely dismissed as old information. That leaves the onus on the forward-looking skew that we take away from monetary policy, as well as the supply dynamic. We do see a round of coupon auctions this week, but as we've seen over the course of the last several months, even at these relatively low outright yield levels, there is plenty of underlying demand for treasury supply. It's not an exciting call, but we expect the treasury market to remain contained in a relatively narrow range. In terms of resistance and tins, we still like 262 with a possibility of a break to that 254 level. For support, anything north of 280, we would expect to present a buying opportunity as sideline participants who have been waiting for more detail and information on the U.S. economy use any such price action as a buying opportunity. The composition of this week's auctions also points to additional curve flattening pressure. A combination of incrementally less dovish rhetoric from the Fed should further aid the flattening call. We continue to expect two stins to retest that nine basis point flat with a chance of pushing up against the zero bound.
We've reached the point in our podcast where we would like to extend our sympathies to anyone who has managed to listen this long. If you find yourself still awake, please rewind to the point where John Hill was discussing term premium, and that should do it. Alternatively, if that doesn't work, please reach out directly and we can get you on the phone with him. On a more serious note, thanks to everyone for listening, and please feel free to send us any questions or topics for discussion on future episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.